This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1933, a radio station in Detroit, WXYZ, debuted a new program. In the depths of the Great Depression, just weeks before the inauguration of FDR, came this. A cloud of dust and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger. With his faithful Indian companion, Toto, the masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. The stories of his strength and courage, his daring and resourcefulness have come down to us through the generations. And nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past and the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse Silver, the Lone Ranger rides again. Come on, Silver! Let's go, big fellow! I'm Silver! The Lone Ranger was created by WXYZ station owner George W. Trendle and writer... Brand Stryker, fighting outlaws with his great horse Silver and his faithful Indian companion Tonto. The Lone Ranger was an instant hit, first on radio and then in movies and on TV for the next quarter century. Who was that masked man fighting crime on the frontier? Writer Fran Stryker created an original story about six Texas Rangers ambushed by outlaws. Other Ranger, all dead. Dead. Uh, you, only ranger left. You, lone ranger. Toto, those killers know me by sight. If they know one man escaped, they'll look for him. And them not know one escape. Tonto bury five men. Make six grave. Crook think you die with others. Good. Then my name shall be forever buried with my friends. From now on, my face must be concealed. A disguise, perhaps. Or a mask. That's it. A mask. With your help, Tonto, I'll get every one of those crooks. In the ranger's eyes, there was a light that must have burned in the eyes of knights in armor. A light that through the ages lifted the souls of strong men who fought for justice, for God. I'll be the Lone Ranger. But this was no flawed, frustrated anti-hero. The Lone Ranger never drank or smoked. He never swore and used perfect grammar. He was a role model for children and shot the guns out of the hands of villains instead of killing them. And show writer Fran Stryker created a creed by which the Lone Ranger lived. Here it is recited at the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia in 2013 during a celebration 
of that masked rider of the plains. I believe that to have a friend, a man must be one. That all men are created equal, and that everyone has within himself the power to make this a better world. That God put the firewood there, but that every man must gather and light it himself. In being prepared physically, mentally, and morally to fight when necessary for that which is right. That a man should make the most of what equipment he has. That this government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall live always. That men should live by the rule of what is best for the greatest number. That sooner or later, somewhere, somehow, we must settle with the world and make payment for what we've taken. That all things change but truth, and that truth alone lives on forever. In my creator, my country, my fellow man. The Lone Ranger Creed, my creator, my country, and my fellow man. Words we don't often hear these days in superhero movies. The Lone Ranger continues in the pages of comic books and movies. The latest was in 2013. And in generations of young people that listened to the radio program or saw the TV show. But it all started on this day in history in 1933 on one radio station in Detroit. And that piece came from one of our producers, Beowulf Rockland. Beowulf, how did you first get introduced to the Lone Ranger? Well, Lee, I had always listened uh, from an early age uh, to radio. I can remember listening to uh, the great Paul Harvey from about the age of five or six. And when I was around nine or ten, I started listening to old radio shows. My my grandfather uh, gave me some tapes, introduced me uh, to them, and I realized that one of my local radio stations would play three hours of old-time radio shows every Sunday evening. And uh, what I would do is I would take my $2 allowance. I would buy some really cheap audio tapes. to record them all, play them back later during vacations, during family road trips. I love Burns and Allen. I love Jack Benny. But one of the ones that stuck with me the most was The Lone Ranger. I love the, the exciting trumpet theme from the William Tell Overture that opened the program. I loved the Lone Ranger's fight against villains. I loved the the moments where his identity, his mask was about to be removed and his identity possibly revealed. Of course, that would never happen. And to this day, I still have some of those tapes kicking around my, my parents' house. And do you still have the tape recorder you recorded those shows on? No, sadly, the uh, tape recorder that I used to record that has long since uh, gone away. I used to go into my parents' room where my mom had a combination uh, tape player and radio. I would roll on all of those radio programs, flip them over uh, in between shows so that I could get one show uh, per side. It was one of those big, clunky 1980s things. And uh, it's long since gone the way of the dinosaurs, unfortunately. But the memories and the images from the Lone Ranger live on in my mind, as they do for many, many people. Well, thanks for sharing those memories. Beowulf, as always, he's a new contributor here on Our American Stories. This day in history, the Lone Ranger was born in 1933 in a radio station in Detroit, WXYZ. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History segment. Brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College. In 1968, on this day in history, the Tet Offensive began in the Vietnam War. Now, that's a phrase we hear every now and then by folks on TV trying to make a point. But what does it mean? What happened? We turn to Jim Robbins, author of This Time We Win, Revisiting the Tet Offensive, to walk us through this often referenced but poorly understood part of the Vietnam War. First, what's the conventional wisdom about Tet? The Tet Offensive, which took place in January and February of 1968 during the Vietnam War, is remembered by most people as a surprise attack by the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong on symbolic targets, during which media reports turned the U.S. public against the war and drove President Lyndon Johnson to the bargaining table. If people know anything about the Tet Offensive, that's basically what they know. But the problem is, everything in that statement is a myth. All right, then let's revisit Tet piece by piece. Was the attack a surprise? The U.S. military and the president knew that something was coming. Documents had been captured throughout the fall of 1967, outlining the overall scheme of the attack, And the enemy plan had even been briefed to journalists at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon in the first week in January. Getting closer to the attack, units in various local areas captured documents showing how their cities, how their localities were going to be attacked. And when the attacks finally came, they came exactly according to the plans that had been captured. Army Lieutenant General Frederick Wayand, who commanded the forces around Saigon, had received permission from General William Westmoreland, who was our overall commander in Vietnam, to deploy his troops to meet the expected enemy attack. The South Vietnamese government had shortened the traditional Tet holiday furlough, and U.S. forces across Vietnam were ready for the coming battle. And even the media understood that something was about to happen. Don North reporter for ABC News, said later that for months any journalist with decent sources was expecting something big at Tet. And General Wayne gave off-the-record briefings detailing his preparations for the coming attack. And even the Washington Post, the day before the Tet Offensive, ran a headline about the expected spring offensive by the communists. So in general... The military, the decision makers, and even the reporters on the ground knew that something was going to happen. It was not a surprise attack. However, because many people in the domestic press, the reporters back home, uh, the reporters in the United States who didn't have the same sources, and the American people did not know it was coming, it surprised them. And Lyndon Johnson later said that not getting ahead of that story, not telling people more about something was going to happen. That was one of his biggest mistakes. Was the Tet Offensive just a symbolic attack by the North Vietnamese? They weren't trying to send a message. They wanted to win. The overall communist plan was known as the General Offensive, General Uprising. Strategists in Hanoi, beguiled by American press reports, believed that their tripwire attacks would foment a mass spontaneous revolution in South Vietnam and that the people in the South would rise up and overthrow the Saigon regime and throw out the American imperialist occupiers. That was their idea. 
They staged mass attacks throughout Vietnam involving over 80,000 troops attacking over 100 cities and towns. I mean, this was not just symbolism. The problem was that the media tended to focus in on a few specific symbolic attacks, such as on the United States Embassy. They would call the embassy attack a kamikaze attack because all the attackers were killed. And thus it kind of reinforced that narrative that, well, it must have been symbolic because everybody who attacked got killed. But no, the orders that were given to the attackers were to take and hold the embassy and then await expected reinforcements. Of course, the reinforcements never came. And when the people failed to rally to the Viet Cong cause, the attackers were left exposed, outnumbered, and outgunned. And this took place throughout the country. So that rather than achieving the total victory that they sought, they suffered a humiliating and historic defeat. But unfortunately, because the American press and even people in the United States government were defining this as symbolic attacks... Well, it's very difficult to say when you are defeated if your intent is just to create a symbol. Yes, the Viet Cong got a lot of attention with their attacks, but they didn't achieve any of their objectives. However, since the objectives were defined down for them by the CIA, by the president and some statements that he made, and the Secretary of Defense, and then later by the media, it looked as though they had achieved a victory. Was Tet the turning point when Americans decided that Vietnam was a lost cause? People look at public opinion at the time and think of the peace marchers, the doves, the protesters, and so forth. And popular culture since 1968 has generally accepted and transmitted the notion that by this time, most people opposed the war effort and that the doves had come into their own. In fact, if you look at public opinion polling at the time, it is the exact opposite. Yes, many people opposed uh, Lyndon Johnson's policies, but not all of those who opposed his policies were in favor of peace. In fact, most people who were against the Johnson policies wanted to ramp up the war. Gallup polling taken before and after Ted showed that people actually wanted to escalate by a two-to-one ratio. They wanted to step up the war after the Tet Offensive because they realized that the enemy was on the run, that we had defeated them, and now was the time to escalate and get the war over with. The number of people who wanted to pull out of Vietnam declined after Tet. In fact, the number of people who wanted to settle the Vietnam War using nuclear weapons was actually twice the percentage of those who just wanted to pull out and wash their hands of Vietnam. So it wasn't true that Tet caused the public to suddenly turn against the Vietnam War. Finally, did the Tet Offensive drive President Johnson to the bargaining table? Peace talks were Johnson's objective all along. That was Johnson's entire strategy was based on a negotiated settlement. He didn't need to be driven to the negotiation table. He had floated 70 peace initiatives between 1964 and 1968. All of them were refused by the North Vietnamese. He tried escalating. He tried de-escalating. He tried bombing in the North. He tried bombing halts. Johnson tried everything to attempt to get North Vietnam to the table. They were the ones who refused. It wasn't Johnson. 
the only thing that brought the Vietnamese to the negotiating table ultimately was the defeat in Tet. It wasn't that they had won in Tet. They knew that they were weakened after the Tet Offensive, and there was very little they can do. Then in March of 1968, at the end of March, Lyndon Johnson announced that he was not going to run for another term as president. He did so in order to convince the North Vietnamese of his sincerity in wanting to negotiate with them. The North Vietnamese responded by finally agreeing to have peace talks in Paris. And then to show their sincerity, the day before the peace talks, they started another offensive called the Little Tet Offensive, which was the original phase two of the uh, first Tet Offensive, to show that they really wanted peace, uh, they attacked. This was the time when public opinion started to turn against the war. Basically, Lyndon Johnson had given up. So it is said that after Walter Cronkite's historic reporting uh, on uh, the Battle of Hue City during the Tet Offensive, Lyndon Johnson said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. But Johnson hadn't lost Middle America. In fact, Middle America lost Johnson. When he gave up, they gave up. When he said that it was time for peace talks and we're going to end the war, the American people said, okay, fine. If that's what we're going to do, then that's what we're going to do. And by the way, you're listening to Jim Robbins, author of This Time We Win, revisiting the Tet Offensive. And just a, a couple of themes emerged from that. Don't let sloppy reporting or misunderstanding lose wars. Don't redefine the enemy's objectives down so that their total failure can be portrayed as an historic victory. Executive leadership matters. Public opinion turned after LBJ gave up, not because of battlefield actions or even media coverage. And that may be the most important lesson of them all. Leadership matters, character matters, and it can affect outcomes. And by the way, see the killing fields. Because after we pulled out from Vietnam, what happened after with Pol Pot may have been some of the most atrocious mass killings of all time. This is Lee Habib filling in the gaps in history. On our This Day in History, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the soundtrack from The Unforgiven, one of our favorite movies here at Our American Stories. And today on this day in history, one of our favorite actors was born in 1930, Gene Hackman. In a career spanning five decades, Hackman was nominated for five Academy Awards, winning Best Actor in The French Connection and Best Supporting Actor in Unforgiven. He first came to fame in 1967 with his performance as Buck Barrow in Bonnie and Clyde, in which he gained his first Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. His major subsequent films include The French Connection, The Conversation, Mississippi Burning, The Firm, Crimson Tide, Get Shorty, Birdcage, The Royal Tannenbaums, 
Enemy of the State, one of Jesse's favorites. He thinks there should be a remake. On July 7, 2004, Hackman gave a rare interview to Larry King in which he announced that he had no future film projects lined up and believed his acting career was over. Let's listen now to the best parts of that interview. Hackman was born in San Bernardino, California, the son of Eugene Hackman and Anna Elizabeth. His parents divorced in 1943, and his father subsequently left the family. Hackman talks about this time in his life. Dad left when uh, I was 13. Um, I saw him later on. Um, he was he was still around around town for a while. I wasn't bitter. I was you know uh, uh, disappointed certainly. Uh, uh, hurt you know i don't think i was ever bitter i loved him you know i loved him right to the end hackman then described his early influences and the encouragement he received from his mother to pursue acting i was very taken with uh, the early days of uh, james cagney and Errol flynn and and uh, ever g robinson and those kinds of films very taken with that and and i uh, my mother and i were at a film once and we we came out through the lobby and she said uh i want to see you do that someday and that was all that was needed because i I already wanted to do it but you know you have to have somebody tell you or you need to to be pushed a bit and that's that's the only thing she ever said to me about acting was she wanted to see me do that astounding and by the way the words that we tell our kids folks there you have it gene left home at age 16 and lied about his age to enlist in the United States Marine Corps, serving four and a half years as a field radio operator while stationed in China. When the Communist Revolution conquered the mainland in 1949, Hackman was assigned to Hawaii and Japan. Here's Gene Hackman on joining the Marines and how his behavior at this time in his life would foreshadow his inability to take direction. I have trouble uh, with direction because I have trouble with authority. I was not a good Marine. I was, uh, I made corporal once and was promptly busted. And I, I went to the Marines when I was 16, and I spent four and a half years in the Marines, and then came right to New York. And then uh, seven years later, I got my first job. It was in New York we had forged friendships with two other aspiring actors at the time, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Duvall. Wow. All struggling California-born actors and close friends They would all three share apartments in various two-person combinations while living in New York in the 60s. The three former roommates have since earned 19 Academy Award nominations for acting, with five wins combined. Hackman got various bit roles, for example on the TV series Route 66 in 1963, and began performing in several off-Broadway plays. In 64, he had an offer to co-star in the play Any Wednesday with actress Sandy Dennis. This opened the door to film work. His first film role was in Lilith. Here's Hackman talking about his love for acting and this particular time in his life. You know, we made $45 a week then, I think, uh, off Broadway. And it was absolutely great. Loved every minute. I've loved every minute of my career. I really have. There's been, you know, tough times, of course, but I like the process so much. My early days in, in, in Broadway were all comedies. I, I never did a straight play uh, on Broadway. I was doing um, <clears throat> a thing called uh, Children from Their Games. Robert Rawson was uh, in the audience and saw, saw me and, um, and put me in uh, Lilith with uh, Warren Beatty. Real nice meeting you. <laughs> yeah. 
Hope you come back real soon. We'll have a real chat. His role in Lilith caught the attention of his co-star, Hollywood producer actor Warren Beatty, who would go on to cast Hackman in the 1967 film classic Bonnie and Clyde. Here's Gene on the success of that film. I tell you, I, I didn't know that a movie was going to be successful, certainly, but uh, it was my first kind of big job in films, and I, I thought, isn't this great? five actors working around in a car you know we we're all in a car and doing these scenes uh, well this is it'll always be like this <laughs> of course it wasn't but it was a great ensemble piece here's a scene from that film where a buck barrow played by hackman is telling a joke to clyde barrow played by warren Beatty. hey on your story about the boy he owned a uh, dairy farm see well, his old ma, she was kind of sick, you know. And the doctor, he called him over and said, uh, uh, Listen, your ma, she's lying there, she's just so sick and she's weakly, and uh, uh, I want you to try to persuade her to take a little brandy, see? Yeah. Just to pick her spirits up, you know. Yeah. And uh, ma's a teetotaler, he says, uh, that she, she, she wouldn't touch a drop. Well, I'll tell you what you do, uh, that's the doc. I'll tell you what you do. <laughs> Uh, you you uh, uh, bring in a fresh quart of milk every day and you yeah. put some brandy in it, see? And until uh, you try that, so, so he, he did. And he, he doctored it all up with the, with, the, with the brandy, the fresh milk, and he gave it to his mama. And she drank a little bit of it. She didn't, you know. So next day he brought in again. And she drank a little more, you know. And so the, they went on that way for so the third day, just a little more. And the fourth day she was, you know, took a little yeah. bit more. And then finally, one week later, uh, he gave her the milk and she just drank it down, boy. She swallowed the whole, whole, whole thing, you know. And she called him over and she said, son, whatever you do, don't sell that cow. <laughs> <laughs> this is Lee Habib, the life of Gene Hackman, celebrated here on Our American Stories. In 1971, he was nominated for the Best Supporting Actor. In 1971, he was nominated for the Best Supporting Academy Award again. This time, for 1970s, I Never Sang for My Father. The next year, he won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance as New York City detective Jimmy Popeye Doyle in The French Connection, marking his graduation to leading man status. Here's Hackman talking about how he almost didn't get the role. Robert Mitchum had been considered by the studio. Rod Taylor was the first choice of Eddie Egan, who was the real cop. The director wanted Jimmy Breslin, New York writer. Um, I fell in the kind of uh, the middle area there because I had done some films and and yet I was still kind of unknown. I, I met with Billy Freakin and uh, and Phil D'Antoni. I met with him. It was a pretty good meeting. And uh, next day they said, "Okay, you got it." Oh, I'm going to check on this address in the Bronx, and if they don't know you, they're at your ass. And that's Hackman in the part. Here's Hackman in another scene from The French Connection where Jimmy Popeye Doyle, interrogating a suspect in an alleyway, asks, You ever been to Poughkeepsie? You gonna tell us who your man is? When's the last time you picked your feet, Willie? Who's your connection, Willie? What's his name? What? Look. Answer him! No, no, man, no! Hey, no. Is it Joe the Barber? What? Joe the Barber, right? No. That's who it is, isn't it? I don't give a shit. What's Joe's last name? I don't know, man. 
Yeah, all I know is he lives on 125th Street, man, above the barbershop. What side of the street do you live on? North or south? North or south? I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't know. I'm north asking south. you what side of the street he lives on. When was the last time you picked your feet? Huh? Yeah, what's he talking about? I've got a man in Poughkeepsie who wants to talk to you. You ever been in Poughkeepsie? Huh? Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? Hey, man. Come on, give me a break. I don't know what you're talking about. Let me hear you say it. Come on. Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? You've been in Poughkeepsie, haven't you? I want to hear it! Come on! Yes, yes, I've You've been there, right? Yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes, and picked your feet, didn't you? That's it! Yes! All right! This is Our American Stories, this day in history. In 1930, Gene Hackman was born. More after these messages. This is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Gene Hackman, born on this day in history in 1930. As always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can send your children to learn all the finer things in life. But if you can't get to Hillsdale or they can't, Hillsdale can come to you. Their free online courses are available for everybody at hillsdale.edu. And they're terrific. There's 16 of them up there right now. Full 10-hour classes. Back to Gene Hackman and his own story. He was now getting his first taste of real fame and fortune. How did he handle it? I didn't handle it very well, really. Um, I, um, I I took care of my family. You know, I, I, they, my family's never wanted for anything. But I, I, because I was so enamored of the, of the Hollywood of old, you know, the, the, the glamour of that, Although I, I never involved myself in that, I, I was, I was, uh, I was really, uh, oh, how do you say? Uh, I was so taken with that, the fact that that I was I was part of that, you know, and that I, I was, I, I could be, I could be anything and anyone I wanted to be, you know. That it was a long time before I settled down, before I, I got to the point where I could. Uh, uh, discern what was really right for me. By the end of the 1980s, he alternated between leading and supporting roles, earning another Best Actor nomination for Mississippi Burning. During this decade, he was also in Reds, Under Fire, and a film called Hoosers. American Film Institute poll voted Hoosiers the fourth greatest film of all time in the sports genre. Here's the scene from that film where Hackman plays coach Norman Dale giving his team a pep talk before the big game. There's a um, tradition in tournament play to not talk about the next step until you've climbed the one in front of you. I'm sure going to the state finals is beyond your wildest dreams, so let's just keep it right there. Forget about the crowds, the size of the school, their fancy uniforms, and remember what got you here. Focus on the fundamentals that we've gone over time and time again. And most important, don't get caught up thinking about winning or losing this game. 
If you put your effort and concentration into playing to your potential to be the best that you can be, I don't care what the scoreboard says, at the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners. Okay? In 1992, he played the sadistic sheriff Little Bill Daggett in the Western Unforgiven, directed by Clint Eastwood, which earned him a second Oscar, this time for Best Supporting Actor. The film won Best Picture. Here, Hackman talks about his role in this epic Western and how he didn't want to be in the film after reading the script. I was sent the script, and then there was a note attached to it that said, um, from, uh, I think from Clint, actually, that said, I would like you to consider this in terms of think of think of it in terms of um, police commissioner Gates was it and uh, I had seen Gates on on uh, some talk shows and that kind of thing and I didn't think he was such a bad guy I don't know if he was or not and I it was the wrong image for me at that at that moment because I hadn't done my homework I was uh, convinced by my agent Fred Spector to that to reconsider it when I was doing it I, I knew there were a lot of good scenes in it the things that that I, I was involved in I, I felt good about uh, but uh, there's a lot of things in the film that I wasn't involved in so I had no idea um, but it it had a kind of a feel to it you know there was a kind of a well, I don't know a sneaky feel about it sneaky indeed in this scene from Unforgiven little bill is whipping the back of Ned Logan played by Morgan Freeman during an interrogation now Ned Mr. Quincy and um, what was the young fellow's name? Elroy. Elroy Tate. No, no, that's not what you said. Elroy Tate. No, you said uh, Elroy Quincy out of uh, Medicine Hat and uh, Henry Tate out of Cheyenne. Hell if I did. Hell if I did. Now, Ned. Them whores are going to tell different lies than you. And when their lies ain't the same as your lies, well, I ain't going to hurt no woman. But I'm going to hurt you. And not gentle like before, but bad. In this interview we've been listening to with Larry King back in 2004, Hackman talks about how he never really considered himself to be a big movie star. I don't like to talk about myself that much. It's the same as as uh, watching myself in, on film. I, it makes me uncomfortable. I love doing the acting. I, I love that part of it. When I'm doing it, I, it I'm just totally enraptured. But the, <clears throat> when I see myself up on the screen, it's that... I see my grandfather. Sometimes I have to watch because I'm going to go off and do publicity and I need to know kind of what happened to the other people <laughs> and all that. But it just makes me very nervous. I'm always afraid somebody's going to sit in front of me and say, 
Are you kidding? Let's get out of here. You know, Warren Beatty's a star. You know, Robert Redford is a star. Brad Pitt. I never think of myself that way. I love the idea of, of if I could have worked in the old days, uh, uh, you know, of the, the studio system, I would have been killed probably. But I never had any aspirations to be a star. I wanted to be a, an actor, a movie actor, a theater actor. Uh, that's all I ever wanted to do. And that's what he was. Here, Hackman talks about his favorite role as an actor, a role that was considered unsuccessful. I always say this, that my favorite it was not, not a film that worked uh, commercially. Uh, it was called Scarecrow that I did with Al Pacino. I love Al. I love his work. Great I just guy. think he is one of our great, great actors. I love to work on that. It was a little bit obscure, the film. It was a little strange. Two guys on the road hitchhiking. It didn't wasn't much of a story, really. It was just, um, it kind of wandered a bit, I suppose. When asked about how he chooses what to do with his characters on screen, Hackman had this to say. I'd like to be able to say that I choose it always on script. Uh, but that's not always the case. You know, many times it, it has to do with uh, if, you, if you need to work, if you haven't worked for a while, you take things that, that might be on the, on the border. But I would, I would say script, uh, director, co-star. Script, director, and co-star. And that script, I mean, you don't have a movie without the words. Where does his work ethic come from, and how does he view a challenging role? A lot of it comes from uh, early days when there wasn't any work, and you, you, you're desperate. You're like a child that you know that's that uh, thinks he'll never eat again. I love challenges. I, I love when somebody sends me. I, I will. I will play anything if if I think it's interesting, regardless politically, if it's not politically correct, or if it's against my. My beliefs are because I think your job as an actor is to portray what you're given, and you're an interpreter. How about that? Just play what you're given. Hackman then shares his thoughts on the differences between theater versus film and technique versus talent. There's something about uh, being big uh, on stage where you have to project, you have to uh, get into the back row. Uh, where a lot of times films, if you've been in films especially a long time, you start modulating down low and trying to be sincere and all that. That, that doesn't work in a theater. It's hard to separate sometimes technique, uh, actor's technique, from personality. That there are a lot of people uh, in the business who have a tremendous personality and they also have some technique. They have that combination of, of personality and technique and talent. Very rare. And by the way, it's very rare to see someone who can command the New York stage in a big theater and then do what's required to, to command a big screen. Very different talents applied. Very few actors do both exceedingly well. And Hackman, thank goodness he was trained on the stage and could do both. He was asked if he ever became starstruck from any other actors. In his answer, he describes a meeting he once had with then President Reagan. You know, I'm a Democrat, but I also um, loved the idea of that man. He was so committed to America, uh, a beautiful American. It's funny, you know, it, it, we have a, an occasion to meet uh, a lot of famous people, 
being in this profession and uh, I, I was sitting outside the, the Oval Office thinking well I'll get this over with and go to lunch or whatever when I got in the Oval Office I was like hey this is really something and yeah. I was very affected by it and, and by him and that's Gene Hackman remarkable by the way he said he was a Democrat but he spoke beautifully of Ronald Reagan If only we could hear that across the political aisle with actors today. Oh, my goodness. This is Lee Habib, the life of Gene Hackman, born on this day in 1930. We leave where we started with the soundtrack from our favorite Gene Hackman movie, Unforgiven. This is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to tell you a story. And it starts like this. Adolf Hitler is dead. The Third Reich, which he built, it lasted just 12 years. But his calculated butchery of human lives and human spirit surpassed anything this earth has ever seen. How did it happen that an ancient and cultured people steeped in Christianity and the arts and sciences, preeminent in modern technology, collapsed into savage barbarism in the 20th century. To seek the answers, we must follow the Germans and the rise of their leader. What we will see will be immensely significant, not only for understanding of the Germans, but in the end of ourselves. And on this day in history in 1933, Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. Evil and chaos can have gentle beginnings. It is in the backwater countryside of northern Austria where Adolf Hitler is born on April 20th, 1889. He's the third child of the third marriage of an Austrian customs official. He's the first of the children to live. Past 50, his father Alois is a harsh and restless man. Three of his seven children are conceived out of wedlock. Adolf's young mother, Clara, who is also his father's niece, is the life of Adolf's existence. She is a very sweet, hardworking, and deeply religious Catholic who will forever remain his warmest memory. As a boy, a teacher observes that young Adolf has limited talent, is lazy and bad-tempered, and arrogantly fancies himself a leader. Adolf is just 13 years old when his father dies in 1903. At 18, with boundless confidence and a portfolio of schoolboy sketches, young Hitler sets out to conquer Vienna. Certain his talent will open all doors, Hitler applies for admission to the Academy of Fine Arts, but he will walk its corridors only as a visitor. In a shattering and unexpected blow, he is rejected. I'm sorry, Herr Hitler, you don't have a style. Your people are like little buildings. There's no life in them. Perhaps if you tried architecture or theatrical design. I'm truly sorry. I have a class to teach. Best of luck. Then, just four years after his father's passing, Adolf's mother dies of breast cancer. All alone, 
Adolf Hitler sinks into a world of drifters and nobodies. Unwashed and gaunt, he sells an occasional crude painting around town for next to nothing, while living in flop houses and in the streets. Hitler didn't have a plan B when he was rejected. He just didn't know what to do, so he started to, to drift. He had very little money. He was living in a hand-to-mouth existence. He had no clear aim in life at all. He was, in a sense, waiting for something to happen. Among Vienna's discontented subculture, right. Hitler's heartache finds right. echoes right. throughout it's the streets. It's the Jews, you know, swarm into our country, steal the bread from our tables. Just ask our mayor. They are wolves. Beasts of prey in human form. For the first time, Hitler senses the uses of hate. The explosive political force stored in the resentments and fears of the masses. His own hates are many. The intermarriage with non-Germans, parliamentary government, inferior races, and of course, the Jews. Anti-Semitism has always existed in European society. But in Hitler, it becomes all-consuming. It's all their fault, you know. They swarm into our country. Take the food from our mouths. And here we are, German and hungry. Early on, he begins reciting anti-Semitic platitudes to anyone on the streets who will listen. In 1913, Hitler leaves Vienna for the German fatherland, Munich. I'm off with the real Germans, huh? The harsh, brooding newcomer is out of place. Munich is the boisterous German land of beer and pretzels, but not for long. War! War! Austrian Institute's assassination leads to war! On August 1st, 1914, a huge enthusiastic crowd, including the misfit outsider Adolf Hitler, gathers in Munich Plaza. The occasion to celebrate Germany's entry into World War I. England, France and Russia are joining forces against our ally Austria. We must stand with her, united, ready to sacrifice. Our lives are nothing. Our country is everything. We are now only Germans. Germany has finally given Hitler what he's always longed for, a place to belong. I fell down on my knees, Hitler writes in Mein Kampf, and thanked heaven for being permitted to live at this time. With the advent of the machine gun, war begins producing epic numbers of casualties. Here's retired U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal explaining World War I's trench warfare. They found that if they dug even shallow trenches and used machine guns, a small number of troops could stop a large attacking force. And then both sides started to dig trenches. And so they were locked along this line, the Western Front, which was this extraordinarily complex set of trenches that didn't move very much either way. The trenches cover 25,000 miles. Laid end to end, they would circle the globe. Two days after Germany's war declaration, Hitler joins the German army and becomes stationed in the trenches. The open area in between the trenches is so deadly, it's known as no man's land. Hitler becomes a dispatch runner, 
whereby he leaves the safety of his company's trench in order to deliver messages through the body-littered no-man's land and into the nearby German trenches. But after months on the front lines, Hitler is still seen as an outcast. Hitler was regarded by the other troops as something of a loner, something of a rather peculiar, eccentric person who kept to himself. But what Hitler lacks in popularity, he makes up for in blind ambition. This has to get through as soon as possible. We don't have much time left. It's dangerous. Either of you makes it. You deserve an iron cross. Yes. Go with God. And when we come back, the life of Adolf Hitler, here on Our American Stories. And it's not an American story, but Hitler's life affected every American who lived at that time and so many of us thereafter. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, Adolf Hitler, his youth and his rise to power for the hour. And yes, it's not an American story, as I indicated earlier, but it's a story that impacted not just America, but the world. And but for America, our GIs, our industrial capacity, who knows what the world would look like? It's almost inconceivable. And on this day in history in 1933, Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. And so he returned back. To the story. Hitler's role as a messenger was actually considered perhaps the most dangerous task in trench warfare. Running from trench to trench, exposing himself to enemy fire, the uh, mortality rate for messengers was quite significant. Then this mind-crushing whopper of a what-if moment occurs on the battlefield. has Adolf Hitler in his sights. And even though he's a trained soldier, he can't bring himself to pull the trigger. If Tandy had pulled the trigger, Adolf Hitler would have died on the battlefields in World War I. And the whole course of human history would have been changed. It's one of the great what-ifs in history. Years of trench warfare transform Adolf Hitler from a directionless loner to a hardened soldier and is now certain he can withstand anything the Allied forces throw his way. The gas attacks are endless. To Hitler, they've become routine. But this time... It's different. The Allies hit the Germans with a deadly new form of chemical warfare, mustard gas. Mustard gas affects the central nervous system. It creates mustard-colored blisters on the skin. It blinds people. It strips away the mucous membranes. It's incredibly painful uh, and debilitating. And since it had no odor, by the time you realized that you had inhaled it and it was on your skin, it was too late. On October 14, 1918, 
Hitler becomes one of the victims of a British mustard gas attack. Then less than a month later, after four years of continuous fighting and 37 million casualties, Germany surrenders. While most of the world celebrates the end of the fighting, one unknown 29-year-old man, Gentlemen. recovering at a military hospital, I have your attention. hears the news. I have an important announcement to make. Earlier today, the Army High Command agreed to negotiate the terms of surrender. War is over. No! We must place ourselves now at the mercy of the victors. Shut up! Pray they will be generous. Shut up! It is the end. It's the beginning. Hitler took the surrender personally. A personal, uh, destructive blow to himself. He also took it as a mission mission in life to avenge and rectify this surrender. While the fighting has stopped, the pressure is on the United States and their fellow allied victors to come to an agreement on how to prevent war from ever breaking out again. The leaders of each allied country, including the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, gather at the Palace of Versailles in France. After six months of intense negotiations, the resolution falls on Germany, forcing them to pay $80 billion, the modern equivalent of nearly half a trillion dollars, a debt they won't pay off until 2010. Germany immediately is struggling with a question of survival. For ordinary Germans, uh, the war did not end in November 1918. For ordinary Germans, the battle for survival, the daily struggle for food, the effort to find shoes and clothing, stretched on into the 1920s. As anger and starvation spread, tensions rise throughout the country. Radical factions struggle to win over the hearts and minds of the populace. The communists and the socialists battle daily in the streets. Who will be able to best exploit this national crisis? Hitler becomes an informer for the demobilized German army and is assigned to infiltrate one of the many socialist factions. One of these groups is the German Workers' Party, led by a man called Anton Drexler. They gather in the back room of a beer hall. Just an excuse to have a drink, I expect, but pay them a visit and tell me what they're planning. But don't drink, sir. Just listen, then. But, interest. The German Workers' Party is an insignificant group of pessimistic and defeated men, passing the time in a beer hall while delivering uninspired speeches and rhetorical platitudes about racial superiority and social reform. Hitler tries to remain in the background, but is unable to restrain his impassioned tongue. You were talking about the purity of the German people. Just no fairy tale. As I was saying, this burst of inspiration was not lost on the party's leader, Anton Drexler. Drexler asks Hitler to speak at their next meeting on October 16, 1919. Many of you may remember him by his comments at our last meeting. So please welcome 
Herr Adolf, Adolf Hitler. But the party attendees are more interested in their beer and getting lost in their thoughts. When I was a boy, I heard the story louder. Our military is in tatters. Our economy collapsing. But it's not poverty or weakness that's our problem. It's indifference. Is anyone listening? That's the problem nowadays, isn't it? No one cares. No wonder we face extinction. This is the 321 liftoff moment for Adolf Hitler and what would soon become known as the Nazi party. To be used against our In just five months, the German Workers' Party expands quickly. They change the name to the National Socialist Party, the French, or, the or Nazi for short. Our enemies live among us. Under Hitler's leadership, membership in the National Socialist Party quickly expands as Hitler experiences his first taste of real power. The, foreign invaders the media love the charismatic speaker and begin printing his stories. In the six months since the over the next the two decades, Adolf Hitler will seduce the media all over the world. Even in the United States, Time magazine awards him their Man of the Year in 1938. The party of the National Socialists, whose fiery speaker Adolf Hitler preaches against the influence of foreign invaders. Who alone are responsible for the moral decadence that now riddles our society? The Jews! The Jews! Yes! Who call themselves German, but who are now and who have always been unwelcome, unwanted, and they are everywhere! Stripping us of our savings, raping our families and our heritage. I tell you, friends, this is war. A war that is soon to turn, where the invaders will become the victims. As the National Socialist Party grows, agitators from rival political factions pour into their meetings in order to disrupt them. They shout down Hitler and start fights. He needs protection. But we need more men like you in the party. Adolf finds muscle in a military official, Ernst Röhm. Röhm is made commander of the Storm Battalion, or SA, the Nazi Party's militia. But before this can happen, Röhm points out the obvious. If my men can crush a revolution, they can also create one. Because they love this country as much as you or I do. Yes. The only little problem is they're unemployed. Yes. And when we come back, more on Adolf Hitler and his rise to power. This is Our American Stories for the Hour. Hitler.
This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Adolf Hitler struggling to finance his National Socialist Party. And on this day in history in 1933, Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. Let's pick up from there. I know some people who would love to hear you speak, who are not likely to go to a beer hall. The wealthy. I've met a few. Armchair politicians care more about their money than they do their own country. Yes, but surely as your party's propaganda leader, you must know that in order to defend their money, they'll spend it, a good deal of it. That is if someone they trust tells them it's a safe bet. That's where I come in. Herr Hitler. Hitler turns to the Harvard-educated American businessman Ernst Homstingel. Homstingel and his wife Helena introduce Hitler to Munich high society and help polish his image. Why don't you have a poster? And a flag. Your picture should be everywhere, with your name in large letters. You might consider a more distinctive look. For example, when you think of Lenin, you think of bearded and bald. Not that that's attractive, but... But it does stick with you. Soon after, Ernst and Helena invite Hitler to speak to a room of influential Germans. It's here where Adolf will meet the future commander of the Nazi Air Force, Hermann Goering. To cast all Germany under his spell, Hitler needs an image that will burn into the minds of millions. Nowadays we'd call it a logo, of course. It was designed personally by Hitler, and it may be that he put some of his artistic impulses into this. The essential part of it ultimately went back to India, but it was taken up as a symbol of racism and anti-Semitism combined with the red background for socialism and the red, white and black colors for the old Kaiserweiss. Hitler's artistic creation is known as the swastika. Hitler unveils his new flag to a group of wealthy German influentials. I brought something I want you all to see. Simple. Aryan. What does it mean? It means the unconquerable. Goering is visibly impressed. The rest are frozen. Tell us, Herr Hitler, have you considered publishing? The meeting is a success. Hitler can now fund Rome's SA police force and begin to push out party propaganda en masse. The Nazi Party newspaper is also launched in 1920. May God and the people of Germany be with us. On November 8, 1923, in what will become known as the Beer Hall Putsch, Hitler leads his Nazis into a Munich Beer Hall, where top government officials are meeting. The German Revolution begins tonight! Threatened at gunpoint, the government leaders reluctantly agree to support Hitler's new regime. Then Hitler and his 3,000 Nazis swiftly march into the Munich streets to take the city by force. There's an armed group heading towards the barracks. His entourage includes Hofstingel, Goering, his future deputy Führer Rudolf Hess, along with Rome and his SA soldiers. But 100 German police are prepared. Fire! 
16 Nazis and three policemen are killed. Goering is shot in the groin. Hitler suffers a dislocated shoulder when the man he locks arms with is shot and pulls him down onto the pavement. Hitler's bodyguards take several bullets after jumping on top of the fallen Hitler, saving his life. Hitler scrambles along the sidewalk out of the line of fire and crawls into a waiting car. Go! Drive! Hitler's attempt to seize power fails. I know a safe place. Turn right up ahead. Desperate, suicidal, and still armed with his pistol. The injured Hitler seeks refuge in Hofstingel's home, just outside of Munich. Hofstingel's wife, Helena, dissuades Hitler from committing suicide as the police come to arrest him. He's arrested and charged with treason. With the collapse of the Nazi revolution, Adolf Hitler. Hitler's political career and the Nazi movement has come to a crashing, almost laughable end. How do you plead? Guilty. Hitler uses his trial as a personal forum to publicize his worldview to the German nation. You have been accused of high treason and called an enemy of the state. If a thief takes your money and you take it back, does that make you also a thief? The courtroom quickly becomes a stage, and Hitler is its hero protagonist. In 1918, we were betrayed by the November criminals, the ones who claimed to be our leaders. They entered the war, signed the Treaty of Versailles, and that was high treason. This is supposed to be an interrogation, not a speech. The judge is visibly impressed by Hitler's response to the prosecutor. If I am guilty of anything, then I am guilty of fighting to defend the rights of the German people. Fascinating, isn't he? After 24 days of deliberation, Hitler's fate rests in the hands of the judge. Herr Hitler, court finds you guilty of treason. Hereby sentenced to a fine of 200 gold marks and five years in Landsberg prison. You will, you will be eligible for parole in nine months. It's a slap on the wrist. Hitler has turned defeat into triumph. The provincial troublemaker is now a national hero. His weight, please. Hey, Hitler. Uh, Hitler spends all his eight months yes, sir, as a celebrated secretary. guest in prison. Yes, sir. And if I may say so, sir, it's an honor to serve you. Plotting his next move with Nazi cellmate Rudolf Hess, who volunteers his time in prison to be Hitler's secretary. Welcome, my Führer. Well, it's lovely, isn't it? Only two things missing, an audience and an income. Perhaps I'll write a memoir. 
What do you think? I think it's an excellent idea. Good. Then I need the publisher. To gain followers and to spread his message, the 35-year-old Hitler creates a manifesto. Financed and published by the Harvard-educated Hofstingel, the heart of which is a radical plan for world domination. He titles it Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. On December 20th, 1924, Hitler is free. But now Hitler's twisted socialist crusade is stopped by the adversary he fears most. Good times have come to Germany. Rebellions have faded, the inflation halted, the country is back to work, and the hardships and humiliations of defeat are fading. And when we come back, the final installment on this hour on Adolf Hitler, his youth, his early years, and his rise to power, here on Our American Stories, and we've done very few stories of people who aren't Americans. Hitler is one. Churchill is another. And when we come back, the end of the story. We left off with Hitler and his Nazi party confronting the opponent that all socialist movements fear most of all. Good times. Economic prosperity. And this period of prosperity is known today as the Roaring Twenties. Let's pick up from there. Then, on October 29th, 1929, after a decade of post-World War I prosperity the New York Stock Exchange suffers the most catastrophic crash it will ever see, losing over $14 billion in just one day. The crash launches a heartbreaking era for America, the Great Depression. The fallout quickly spreads throughout the world, but one of the countries taking the biggest hit is Germany. Hitler will not let this national crisis go to waste, Unemployment increased so dramatically that it opened the door for radical movements to gain support. It was the Great Depression that made Hitler possible. Hitler believes he can rally the desperate people around his vision of a new powerful Germany, setting in motion a plan he first described in his manifesto, Mein Kampf. What we must fight for is to safeguard the existence and the reproduction of our race and our people. Mein Kampf is enormously significant. It provided a kind of outline for all the things that Hitler wanted to do eventually. Hitler clearly believed passionately from the start of his career right to the end that the Jews were the world enemy who intended to destroy Germany paranoid fantasy of his. He believed he was chosen by destiny 
to rescue Germany. We must reverse the Treaty of Versailles. Hitler recruits new members to his party and tours the country giving impassioned speeches and distributing various forms of Nazi propaganda. What the Nazis did was to project an image of energy, vigor, youth, determination in the service of Germany. They're constantly marching through the streets with banners. There's constant speeches, meetings, huge activity. And this projects this image of that they're going to do something. All the other parties are just wasting their time talking. We're actually going to do something. If the nation does its duty, then the day will come which restores to us one right in honor and freedom. Hitler's speeches had some kind of unique power. He served as a lightning rod for all the discontent in Germany. He managed to focus it and channel it and uh, become it. Within a few years, the National Socialist Party is transformed from a fringe organization into a growing political movement. Hitler's Nazi party quickly holds the largest numbers of seats in parliament. The Nazi strongmen come not to debate, but to end debate. The government comes to a standstill. Now, with widespread support, Hitler's dream is finally within his grasp. He has won his countrymen by demands for action. Now they expect action. He has promised a new Germany. Now they want it. The evangelist of hate has become the prophet of hope. Moderate parties try to remind the public of Hitler's long-standing promise that when he gains power, heads will roll. It is a campaign promise Hitler fully intends to keep. Do you solemnly swear to carry out the obligations of the office of Chancellor? Just as Franklin Delano Roosevelt is first elected president of the United States in 1933, the faltering, senile German president Hindenburg hands Hitler a ceremonial position in the government as Chancellor of Germany, hoping to pacify his Nazi movement. But in the slippery business of double-dealing, Hitler proves the master. Immediately following the ceremony, 20 million people across Germany tune in to this radio broadcast. Hitler's largest audience ever. Germans, my people, party members, rich and poor, city and country, the educated and knowing, and the ignorant. The task of politics is not to represent just one faction. Rather, the task of politics must be to overcome these divisions for a greater good. In our hands alone, 
liegt die Zukunft. Lies the destiny of the German people. In these hands. hands. The words of the speech are unimportant, oft-repeated platitudes, but the level at which they ignite passion, loyalty, and obedience is sorcery. After this speech, the Nazi party is flooded with so many membership requests, they have to suspend admissions. Then, just two weeks after being named the Chancellor, someone sets fire to the German parliament building called the Reichstag. Tell Rome he can still be of some sort. A giddy Hitler, who never claims responsibility, arrives on scene and feigns outrage. This, this is a signal from God. We are under siege. The terrorists have opened fire, and we will fire back. It's good to see him so happy. This is an outrageous crime, and someone will answer. Hitler calls an emergency meeting of the Reichstag. In order for the government to carry out necessary procedures against terrorism, Reichstag must support an enabling act. This act is your opportunity to hand power over those that can wield it most effectively. From now on, all legislation will be handled by the administration, which will have sole right to make constitutional changes. Freedoms of speech, association, and the press are temporarily suspended. Privacy rights in relation to telephone and postal communication are revoked. I will take any refusal as a statement of opposition. Gentlemen, you must decide. Will it be peace or war? Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles, über alles in They approve the Enabling Act, which effectively turns Germany into a police state, with Hitler as their absolute ruler. In what will become known as the Night with the Long Knives, Hitler begins arresting German citizens by the thousands and eliminates nearly 100 of his political enemies, including media figures and reporters. Who is your source? Even his own SA commander, Ernst Röhm. High Führer. And so in his honor, I will bring you all into the Reichswehr army. Rome's SA are replaced with two million Hitler-controlled SS guards. In one move, Adolf Hitler has taken complete control of the government and is now supreme leader of Germany's 67 million citizens. A time of peace and prosperity awaits us. The thousand-year Reich has begun. Sieg Hell! It is the 28th of March, 1933. Adolf Hitler has been dictator for five days. Even so, unless you openly oppose the Nazis, your life goes on as before. 
But for many, this was about to change. We are having lunch with a law professor and his wife. They are both Jewish. The amazing thing is that this clever, charming woman is not at all opposed to the Nazis. On the contrary, she lectures us on the outstanding qualities of Adolf Hitler, on the greatness of the age which we are allowed to witness, on the national rebirth. And she is firmly convinced that no harm whatsoever will come to educated Jews in Germany. And there you have it, Hitler's rise to power. And so convincing was he that even some intellectual Jews bought the story. And this is our American stories. Great job on that, Greg, as always. And we'll play this many times every year.